One July morning on Capitol Hill, the Subcommittee on Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education and Related Agencies, I know, a mouthful, gathered. The year was 2001. Senator Tom Harkin, then chairman of the subcommittee, remarks, This hearing is about what we are going to be doing in the 21st century to improve the learning skills for all of our kids from the earliest age on through all of their education. Five or ten years ago, people would argue about whether or not technology could really help students learn. I think we have settled that argument. It's not about whether, it's about how. The how, I think, will continue to change as we develop new processes and we get new technologies. The computers are expensive, he says, but I think they're worth the money and they are making differences. We're fortunate to have an outstanding panel of witnesses to discuss these topics, he concludes. The next speaker is the primary research expert, and she focuses her remarks on collaboration, expression, and the importance of context before sharing what is essential if your goal is effective software design. My favorite part is where, just before passing to the next speaker, she says, I hope you will conclude from my testimony that we are getting measurable results from educational technology, that we know what it takes to make new educational technology programs successful, and that the federal government must continue to provide the leadership and funding without which this progress would not have occurred. I would further hope that the leaders in this room have the vision to realize that the progress we have made has prepared us for an entirely new level of leadership and funding, that it may be time to conceive of an education initiative on the scale of the Apollo program or the genome project. Indeed, I would submit that the top rating given to education issues in every public opinion poll suggests that the American people have never been more ready to be captivated by such a vision. Within this decade, it will be possible, she continues, to develop the technologies and to expand the capacity of the educational system such that every day of school from kindergarten through college will be an intellectual adventure tailored to each student's particular learning needs. It will be possible for our teachers to see clearly how each child is progressing, and it will be possible to activate all of the resources in school, at home, and in our communities to ensure that no child is left behind. If we do this, then every other great goal we might set for this country surely will follow. When I first read this testimony from Dr. Margaret Honey, I was struck by the contrast between her vision of what might come from No Child Left Behind, I'm sure like a lot of like-minded scholars and educators like her, it was so different from how we came to know it. In many ways, knowing Dr. Honey in 2022, I think it's safe to say that the detour that came in the following decade was not the moonshot she thought possible. It might have become, as you'll hear in our conversation, the beginning of a dreadfully disappointing focus on the wrong things. Just weeks from 2023, the Fed has released results of the national testing folks have come to know as the nation's report card. Spoiler alert, if you haven't heard the news, that data paints the opposite of the picture in that 2001 testimony. And yes, of course, there have been hurdles unforeseen like COVID, but let's keep it real about our progress before the pandemic. We weren't killing it. And some might argue that the data characterizes a problem for our country that we've known for too long. 
when things are hard out there, everyone suffers some, but students with the least, by common socioeconomic markers, suffer the most. I didn't even know that the field awaited me in 2001. A month later, the events of 9-11 unfolded, and five months later, the signing of No Child Left Behind. I was clawing my way toward professional meaning I wouldn't find for years. I met Dr. Margaret Honey around 15 years ago. At the time, she was just transitioning from her leadership role at the Center for Children and Technology out of Education Development Center, or EDC, and toward a new chapter as the president and CEO of the New York Hall of Science, NYSI for short. She's been a hero of mine for a long time. Doing a little extra research for the episode deepened my admiration. I can't wait for you to meet her. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here. I'm Margaret Honey, the president and CEO of the New York Hall of Science. Whether we like it or not, her work characterizes well that some of the challenges we take up as professionals turn out to be the problem of a lifetime. Some, even the problem of generations. Margaret is one of those people who inspire me to keep asking the questions and driving toward our ideals. In her case, what I uncovered through this conversation is that sometimes values and ideals you've established in one context won't appear entirely relevant or practical until you find yourself in a new context, in this case, a renowned science museum focused on cultivating inquisitive creativity. Add an unprecedented pandemic and the setting of one of the most culturally diverse, densely populated communities on the planet, Corona Queens. Maybe not until that moment could she realize a home for all that she's been advocating for. But again, worth admiring is how she gives the credit lately for progress and new momentum to her talented team at the museum and the community that have embraced them in Queens. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Margaret Honey. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. So... Tell me about the grand reopening. This is exciting. <laughs> does it mean, does reopening suggest that you guys have been closed? Yeah. So what happened to us, like like everyone, we were affected by the pandemic. Um, although we early on made a decision to kind of keep the museum closed and really use the time to refresh everything from visitor amenities, like redoing bathrooms and things that are hard to get to when your building is teeming with thousands of kids, like mm -hmm. replacing carpeting and fixing leaky roofs and those kinds of things. And also we worked on creating a number of new exhibits and we opened in July of um, 21, July 1st of 2021. And we were open for two months and then September 1st, mm. Hurricane Ida came to the New York area and hit Queens very, very badly. And, you know, I think we got um, four inches of water in, you know, under a couple hours. Oh. And um, we were very badly flooded, very badly flooded. I mean, to the, you know, many, many millions of dollars mm. <laughs> worth of damage. And um, after lots of new, new investments. After, right? Yeah, after lots of new investments. So um, we were, um, we were determined to really, you know, try to get the building opened as soon as we could. And we partially reopened in February. Um, but we were, you know, we were at greatly diminished capacity. Um, and 
we were fortunate to be able to move forward with a you know a number of the restoration projects and exhibit repair projects and all of that and um so on october 15th we celebrated the reopening of nearly all of our public spaces the one area of the museum that remains offline is our science playground our plan is to open that next summer but all of the other public spaces are our outdoor rocket park area and all of our interior spaces are open um, and the place looks it looks magnificent we have new exhibits we have a new exhibit called powering the city it's all about energy mm. um, we um, have an exhibit that was developed here several years ago and had been traveling to other museums uh, it's called human plus and it's about the ways in which we can use a broad range of technologies to kind of enhance human abilities um, so that exhibit has returned to its home and it's on display we have a brand new mars rover mm. the genevieve 2 there's a wow. whole story behind that um and um and with a new user interface and all of that, it's and and very compelling. And um, at certain sort of prideful moments, the rover plays "We Are the Champions." So <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so that's fantastic. And um, at the end of this month, we'll have a new exhibit on microbes coming in called "Small Discoveries." Um, so there's you know there's lots of new things to see and. Um, some of our older exhibits we restored and refreshed. Um, so our beautifully digitally immersive exhibit, Connected Worlds, which mm. is about issues of sustainability and kind of planetary well-being, we um, upgraded the projectors in that environment, and it it looks absolutely stunning. Mm. And it's still such a you know magical and timely exhibition that visitors love. Um, and our whole um, downstairs area where our design lab and makerspace is, um, that was very badly flooded. And all of that has now been restored. Hmm. So we are we are back. <laughs> and we're back. I, I mean, the incredible thing, and this is a tribute to all of my colleagues um, and, you know, and some of our um very loyal supporters who really stepped up to the plate to help us. Um, we've, you know, we've done it in record time. It's so exciting. In a way, I'm kind of glad we got delayed in yeah, exactly uh, in chatting it's a much because better moment. I feel like we have a lot to promote. Uh, you know, if if um, any of this draws people to the museum. Um, then it feels like a perfect time after the grand reopening. And it sounds like there's so much to see. Um, I talk to people all the time about, um, about the playground. So I am super excited to hear that it's reopening. Um, you know, so I think the number is still around a half million people a year that come through the museum. And so we just had this, I'm, I'm, maybe this is something you know. I mean, how many museums took advantage the way that you all did? Um, it seems like such a, it seems like a very bold move to say we're closing. Um, 
and we're going to focus on innovation. At the same time, it feels very New York Hall of Science, you know, at its sort of in its bones. Um, that must have been a really hard, hard choice. Uh, is Was your experience different from a lot of colleagues that you talked about nationally or did, did a lot of museums and public spaces follow, follow the same route? So I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's different for everyone. And, um, you know, the other museum that I know that did, did something similar was, um, the children's museum in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. um, which like the hall of science puts a lot of stock in, kind of really trying to innovate and um, bring unusual and, you know, bringing learning experiences to kids that are really deeply, deeply engaging and really thoughtful and really intentional. And um, so I remember talking to their CEO uh, kind of early on in the pandemic, and she used a wonderful phrase. She said, you know, we're leaning into calling this a gift of time. Mm. And that was a real kind of game shifter, game changer for me. It really helped me kind of reframe my thinking and rather sort of treating this as a period of loss. We we leaned into treating it as a period of opportunity. Um, And it really was that it um, you know, it allowed us to do things like build up our exhibits team, um, do more design and fabrication work in-house, um, kind of build um, additional muscles mm-hmm. that we knew we wanted but were not so strong. And we were really able to use the, um, the closure as the occasion to do that. And then, of course, you know, as I said earlier, getting getting to all those projects that are just really hard to get to when um, your building's running seven days yeah. a week. Yeah. Um, so it 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 was you know the the pandemic was um, challenging, and like many institutions, we had to let um, we had to let colleagues go. And our kind of rule of thumb was, you know, if you didn't actually have work like there was not a role for you to play Mm -hmm. then we you know we had to eliminate your position um which was hard for a lot of people um of course and then the other thing that was going on um in our corner of queens is that you know the corona and elmhurst communities in particular were so badly devastated by the pandemic. Um, And, you know, Corona was called the epicenter of the epicenter when New York was at its peak. And we, you know, we, we do work and have been doing for a number of years. We work with um, schools and other organizations in the local community, but this um, really propelled us to reach out um, to our network of collaborators and just with a simple question like, you know, if we all come together around a virtual table, what what might we be able to do collectively to help? And that um, spurred um, a group that continues to meet to this day. Actually, many, many of our colleagues from, we call it the Elmhurst Corona Recovery Collaborative, mm. um, many of them were here over the weekend um, 
you know, sharing information about their own organizations and opportunities, um, because we draw a lot of people locally from the local neighborhoods. Um, and we, you know, during the pandemic, we we hosted food drives. We, um, you know, early on, we were doing a lot of COVID testing. Um, then that turned into vaccine opportunities. And, you know, we kind of, things changed. And now, um, now we we do pretty regularly, and I'm I'm certain this will continue. Um, we work with a wonderful organization called La Jornada um, to do um, food and toy giveaways at you know key sort of holiday times of years, and um, everybody gets involved. So you know there are twenty plus organizations participating in the Elmhurst Corona Recovery Collaborative. And for these big events, everybody turns out, everybody helps. Um, we, you know, so families are not just standing in line. We all create activities and things for people to do and, mm. you know, fun stuff for children. And it's, um, it becomes a very kind of festive occasion. And and NYSI is fortunate because we, we have such a big campus mm that we, we can host these events. So it's been, you know, that's a, that's a really good thing to come out of the pandemic. Um, we know each other better. Um, we, we have, we now have, um, you know, a number of like formalized collaborations with organizations locally, um, working on different kinds of projects, one around sort of public health and, um, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's like anything there, you know, I don't mean to sound overly Pollyannish, but there, there really truly are silver linings to be found. Um, mm. Even when we experience the flood, um, you know, we, <laughs> we've not only learned a lot, um, but we've, um, you know, we've, we we took advantage of what was destroyed and you know one of the things we were able to do was completely renovate um and upgrade our machine and fabrication shop mm. and um and really really thinking about the the work our vastly expanded exhibits team is doing and sort of redesigning space not just in the shop but um, office space and and um, clean room space for them so that their capabilities to um, fabricate and produce more um, more of what we need right here at the museum is significantly enhanced, hmm. which has a million benefits. It you know it allows us to uh, more effectively realize our learning and engagement goals, um, but it also importantly, lowers cost because the minute you you take things out for fabrication you know you're looking at costs that run three to four times what you pay in-house right um, and so that's would, a big I, deal. I would imagine that um the upside to some of that is being able to bring fabricators back in from the area as opposed to outsourcing all of that uh, yeah so where yeah. You lost people at the beginning of the pandemic. Right. A, a growing fabrication shop internally, in addition to all of the other upgrades right. to the space and everything else, hopefully allows you to come back and be a, 
a better employer or a yeah or a, yeah no we have a we have a fabulous new team of colleagues who um, are overseeing that component of the work the you know the fabrication um, and and sort of building parts of the enterprise I have a hundred different questions I I really <laughs> would like to ask just based on that because for somebody who has spent so much of your work arguing that the making is important. Um, I, maybe you saw it coming, but who would have thought that a couple of years of pandemic brings it so close to home in that way and helps you almost as a, as a CEO in this space um, to kind of reignite that in a, yeah. am I making sense? I, yeah, you're you're making a lot of sense. I mean, I think I think there was a lot um, in the works. So we had done what museums call um, an interpretive planning process, which was so important for the organization because um, although we've been, you know, we've been kind of evolving and working on our our approach, you know, that we call design make play, our sort of aspirational pedagogy. People understand that, um, you know, people need, what I want to say is people need the time and space to understand what that means and how that gets operationalized and translated in relation to their own work. Mm -hmm. So we had brought together um, a cross-section of people working, um, of course, in the exhibits team, but also our research staff, our, you know, our visitor operations staff, our youth staff, um, and our, our education staff, um, in addition to, you know, folks who wear fundraising hats and marketing hats and those kinds of things to really work um, collaboratively on building a, a shared understanding of the kinds of experiences that we wanted to to develop here. And, um, you know, Katie Culp, who's our chief learning officer, really led that work. And it was so valuable in terms of getting everybody on the same page, getting everybody sort of moving in the same direction and getting everybody excited about the possibilities mm. that we had in front of us. And I think you know, that combined with we were in prior to the pandemic, we were in the early phases of a campaign to raise money for new exhibits and improve visitor amenities. Um, and we had raised a little bit principally from those closest to us, board members. But when the pandemic hit, we were like, hey, we could actually lean into doing some of this work mm -hmm. um, and and build you know, really build additional capacity. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't perfect. Like we, one of the exhibits the team worked on, which we opened the summer following the pandemic was called the happiness experiment. And that was very intentional. We really wanted to, um, you know, sort of use the the conceit of happiness or resilience, well-being, the, the kinds of themes that confronted so many of us, as we were isolated and, you know, shut away from friends, family, connection, all of those kinds of things, and create an experience that um, both explored the psychology and 
particularly the brain science behind lots of those constructs, but um, do so in a way that would would give our visitors sort of, you know, an, a very active experience of, um, uh, of exploring those ideas. So we, it, our exhibits team is um, deep, deep believers, and this is really important in the power of prototyping and, you know, doing many iterations of ideas with our visitors. And of course, during the pandemic, that was harder to do. But, mm. you know, finally we got to the point where New York State was like, okay, you can have 25 people in the building. And mm. so we did like, you know, four weekends of prototyping sessions. And um, one of the one of the exhibits that they were testing was um, sort of built around the idea of, of kind of catharsis, of release and, um, you know, sharing. Um, the conceit was you could write on a piece of paper you know, a memory that you wanted to get rid of, that you wanted to like just shred literally. And then they developed, they developed a giant shredding machine. Um, and I love that. And I know it was, and there was one, one young boy who came back, I think every single weekend with his dad, because he just wanted to shred. He was, wow. <laughs> he was really into it. And, and indeed it is a very um, popular um, component of the exhibit. And we know from some of our colleagues whose, you know, kids have come or family members have come that, you know, it's, it, it actually has played that kind of role, not always, but occasionally, um, in young people's lives where the act of writing down and then, you know, sort of literally having this machine tear it up, um, created an opportunity for, a young person to open up and say, you know, I was really struggling with this where they hadn't, you know, they'd had a hard time talking about accessing what they were feeling before. Um, That's so cool. So, you know, we, we kind of, um, we worked our way through all this. And I think, you know, it's a, again, I, I mean, I keep going back to my colleagues, Mark, because um, they are, they are an extraordinary group. They've weathered a lot and, you know, they prove themselves to be kind of resilient and, um, and willing to rise to, you know, some really challenging situations. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it always boils down to people. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, so something you were saying earlier when you were describing, um, the Elmhurst Corona Recovery Collaboration and La Jornada. Um, I wondered to what extent the last couple of years has changed your thinking or evolved your idea about museums and being a leader at a museum as community work. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think it's made us all um, kind of dig deeper and think harder and engage more. And um, we did um, that same summer after the pandemic, we did a big kind of rethink of our community work and, um, you know, have really leaned into building much more in the way of partnership models of collaboration and um and we've also um, 
in in collaboration with the city of New York and the local school district here, we've opened a science-themed preschool on our campus. That opened this year, hmm. earlier in September. And we're the school's um, you know, principal education partner with the role of really bringing um, you know, STEM, STEAM activities, STEM activities that are infused with a kind of design make play, so you can call it STEAM, um, in, into the curriculum. Um, there is a, a strong UPK curriculum in the New York City public schools that's really, you know, very thoughtful about early learning, very playful, very anchored in doing, kind of, uh -huh. you know, all the things that dovetail well with us. Um, but they were really excited to build and develop this collaboration with the New York Hall of Science as a way of bringing early science learning or STEM learning more explicitly into the curriculum. So we're working on that and all of the families attending the school have memberships to the museum and we've developed a whole program of family engagement as well, have put together a parent advisory board. So uh. we're no longer cooking things up to deliver to, we're collaborating to create together, really leaning into, you know, hearing from people, here are the kinds of things we're interested in, or, you know, here's what we need to figure out. And, uh. and that's, um, that's extending into our research work as well in, in really interesting ways. So one of our colleagues um, has new funding from the National Science Foundation to build a research practice partnership with parents and educators from the school and science, science instructors from the Hall of Science to do the like the work that I think we've all come to believe is so important, which is to ask questions like what what is good STEM learning? Uh. Why is it important? Why should my, you know, why should kids be exposed to this? To really have opportunities to um, build common and shared understandings rather than just, you know, kind of being in this position of authority, which, you know, this sort of big, giant, scary STEM institution, I think, feels like to a lot of people rather than being in that position, being in a position of, you know, let's let's work on this together. Let's define our goals and objectives together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, let's let's hold ourselves accountable to them and, um, you know, like constantly examine um, the ways in which we're, you know, we're realizing them or not or ways in which we can improve. Um, so because for. Um, you know, I think. And this goes back to your question of museums as community anchors. And I think for us, it, that question takes on a particular, um, you know, a particular sort of color in relationship to science or STEM. And I say that because I think, you know, far too many children and there's, you know, there's very conclusive data on this. Far too many children continue to encounter science, um, particularly at the at the elementary level, but you know, throughout school, um, as nothing more than a memorization exercise. 
despite, you know, all the push for, you know, the next generation science standards and the importance of getting these opportunities to explore and use scientific practices to solve problems and all of those kinds of things that have long been advocated for. Um, the reality is, I just worked on a report for the National Academy, so, you know, this is all fresh in my head, but, you know, science is taught on average something like 40 minutes once a week at the elementary level. Mm. And in our poor schools, poor communities, that number decreases to about 20 minutes. And most of the instruction is just memorization. And it's, I, I mean, we've been doing this for years. <laughs> we've been doing this poorly for years. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, so many um People are skeptical of science. We saw that, you know, we saw that around vaccines during the pandemic. I'm not going to trust you. Mm. You know, science isn't trustworthy. The people who do science aren't trustworthy. And I, I think, you know, in our education system, and there are always exceptions to the rule. Of course. We, we know, always. But in the aggregate, we do a fabulous job of alienating people from, you know, the the power and potential of the scientific disciplines, which is kind of heartbreaking and short-sighted and all of that. Um, and also, it's also a consequence of, you know, the stakes we put in the ground around accountability, which kind of boils down to English language arts and mathematics, particularly at the elementary level. So those, those subjects squeeze, you know, everything else out of the curriculum. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and there are there are, you know there are so many amazing educators out there, and there are always exceptions to the rule here. But um, we are we're leaving, in my opinion, we're we're both leaving too many young people out of the equation, and the opportunity to engage with disciplines that you know, set them up with tools and skills and competencies, regardless of whether you go into scientific or engineering or technology-based professions, those those skills and tools and competencies are going to serve you well throughout your life. Hmm. And we're, as a country, we're, we're doing a really excellent job of, you know, creating an education elite that has access to high-quality learning experiences, high quality instruction, and an education underclass that doesn't. And and it's heartbreaking for, you know, as somebody who spent 40 years in kind of this space, it's, it, there's not enough change. In yeah. fact, I would say we've regressed. When, you know, when I started, when I was young and in my mid twenties, um, you know, Progressive education was not a dirty word. It was, it was what we aspired mm. for all of our children to have. Um, and I've seen that kind of whittled away by the notion that, nope, 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 what you got to do is get kids over the test. Mm. They're not learning if you can't get them to, over the test. And I, I'm not opposed to testing, but I am opposed to testing the way in which we do it, the way in which we realize it, and the way in which we use it in our schools, because testing is not learning. Um, and I worry a lot that, 
that the focus on accountability has has done a lot to undermine um, teachers' professional expertise, yeah. their competencies. Um, it, we've we've gotten it so profoundly wrong. Yeah, and we should know better because you know we we have good schools. Um, we know what they look like. We know what they can do for young people. Um, and I don't know. We've just we've made a mess of it. Yeah, we get we get hung up. Yep. Um, I was listening to. I was listening to a story this morning that was a journalist sort of embedding, and I'll I'll leave a link in the show notes, and maybe you heard it or read it. It was part of the Sunday Read in the New York Times, but it was about um, I did. It was about race and um, yeah. and critical, critical race, race theory. theory. theory yeah, not not to this this episode is not about that in some ways everything is about that as far as i'm concerned but but um but sometimes i hear that conversation and i wonder i wonder what makes us think that we can get that right when we still haven't gotten science right or math right um or it, or learning yeah, right exactly. you know i think I mean, I did listen to that episode, um, and it was it was it was really fascinating and and sad because so sad. it is clear that um, it's clear and you know I think on, on a certain level understandable that you know words are polarizing for people mm. and if you want to get beyond that you you have to create a different kind of dialogue. And I kept thinking as I was listening to it, because I've, you know, I've seen schools do this, um, you know, engage in conversation around student work product and ask themselves, um, and it could be around anything. It could be around essays. It could be around science projects. It could be around math output. But, you know, ask themselves the question, um, is, you know, is this, is this, is this meeting our expectations? Do we see evidence of what we, of the skills and competencies that we want our children to have and develop? And it's a much safer path into, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of what that first principal and then superintendent as she evolved in her career was after was, you know, how do we ensure that our children have sort of the, the tools they need to be discerning citizens, thoughtful citizens? And, you know, there's a safer way into that than saying you must do X or Y or Z, mm -hmm. because the minute you introduce the, um, you know, the here's what you have to do to... Um, to improve yourself, You've, somebody's back is against the wall. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at a shared artifact, it's a lot safer. I'm not saying it's easier, but it's, you can find common ground, I think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. you can't, like, you, you just can't, you can't, 
you, you you've got to avoid the you must you should you you aren't like yeah like i feel like that just closes our ability to speak to one another yeah and of course you know it it, it has not helped that we you know we weathered the storm of a president who made that normal which was a travesty yeah um it's easy i one of the things i love to hear about your story of the last few years outside of course of the tragedy and and loss and um is so i'm about midway through the career that you described and um and I'm sure you've experienced it too, that moment of where you just kind of lose hope that the thing you're working on, um, like this cooperative process that you described where, you know, we're, we're creating a thing at NISI that is both a learning community. And um, as you were describing that, I was thinking, oh, what a, what a wonderful way to rejuvenate a hope that I'm sure has been rekindled in a thousand different ways since you started your career. Uh, but hearing you talk about it gives me, gives me a little, a little jolt of that. But um, anyway, I wonder to what extent you feel at this point in your career, like, um, like this was a necessary moment to sort of reinvigorate your hope that, there is a cooperative process out there that is community driven and all, all these sort of jargonized ways that we talk about a way to do it that feels better. Um, does it feel like necessary in a way at this point? Yeah. You know, I, I was, when you were reflecting, Mark, I was thinking about, I was thinking back to Saturday and the reopening celebration and how many of us like were inspired by the visitors who were here, inspired by what they were doing, their happiness, their pleasure, their delight. We, um, we had a wonderful um, NASA astronaut with us, Dr. Jeanette Epps is her name and wow. native New Yorker, grew up upstate, a really wonderful woman. She'll be the first African-American woman to go to the space station. And um, and it was inspiring to see people connect with her. And like, not just, like they, they wanted to follow her everywhere. Hmm. And, and then, you know, with no planning, I mean, nothing, like this was spontaneous. I, I, maybe this family saw some of our social media about um, Dr. Epps' appearance. Um, but his two little girls showed up in, in you know, flight space suits. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my were, goodness. Little budding astronauts. Wow. And, and then also um, we had a, a host of wonderful, extraordinary elected officials come and um, celebrate our reopening with us. And of course they all made speeches and it, I, it, it was fascinating um, 
to watch Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez, who it's just no other way to say this. She is a rock star mm. to so many people who look like her. I, I saw, I mean, and she was so patient and so good and so willing, but families just line up and then, you know, like push their kids in front of her and just say, can we, you know, can we do the selfie? Can mm. we, right. And, um, and you could, I walked away from that with a very different understanding. And very different with a just a, you know, like hope with with a different level of appreciation for what it means to see somebody who looks like you in a position of importance. Um, of significance, an astronaut, mm -hmm. a congressional representative, a borough president, you know, a state senator, right? Uh, you know, an assembly member. Um, the, and the extraordinary thing about New York, but Queens in particular, is, um, you know, this 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 borough has historically and continues to welcome people from all over the world mm -hmm. and be home to them. And it's a, it's a launching pad for, mm -hmm. for so many people. Um, and I think, I think the, you know, the thing about my work or my time at the New York hall of science is in a place like this, you get to experience that in a very immediate and anchored way um non-negotiable way right and and that does inspire a kind of hopefulness yeah um you know but i you know i also like running a museum's hard right <laughs> it's like it's a lot you know there's a lot you have to juggle i remember mm -hmm. once talking to a colleague who's running a much bigger institution the museum of science and industry mm -hmm. in chicago yeah. and he had had a number of impressive careers in his lifetime. And he said to me, this is the hardest job, wow. Margaret. And I was kind of new in my role at that point. And I was thinking, oh, no, 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 it's not going to be the hardest job. Yeah. It's, it's hard because we, you know, like our, our political stakeholders value this place enormously and they know its importance and for many of them they experienced its importance as a child growing mm -hmm. up in queens and yet as a society unlike you know unlike our european colleagues we for the most part don't invest mm. um significantly in our cultural institutions now new york is a little bit different because we have the cultural institutions group model, which NYSAI is part of. We're, we're all the 33 of us that make up, um, you know, that consortia of organizations and museums that are both in Manhattan and in the outer boroughs are uh, in city owned buildings. We, we get some support from the city, which we're grateful for. It's always a struggle. There's never enough, yep. you know? Um, and 
you just, you know, sometimes, particularly when I talk to colleagues from Europe, I, you know, I leave with less hope and more envy because the kind of stability they have around, you know, core funding gives them a much more stable platform from which to work and enact and create and all of that. And it's, you know, it's that rub. It's like, I think for organizations like ours, it's, you know, how do you create that stable base of support on which you can then kind of build and innovate? And it's it's an ongoing challenge. And, you know, when you confront when you confront a pandemic and then you confront a massive flood, you're um, you know, you've you feel you definitely feel challenged and mm. you feel a bit more unstable and you feel vulnerable. Um but at the same time, you know, again, silver linings, um, people rallied behind us. People helped us get back on our feet in record time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, I mean, life, I think, exists right in this kind of space of tension between what you're challenged by and what you're most hopeful about or excited about. Right. And it's, you just have to figure out kind of how you navigate that. Yeah. How to balance there. How to balance. Yeah. Can, can I ask, um, can we talk about technology for a few minutes? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the things I was really interested to ask you from where we started in the interview, you were talking about bringing some of the fabrication in house and upgrading projectors and, and those kinds of things. And, um, I wondered, so I think that in K-12 especially, we get this sort of two-dimensional sense of how technology is or isn't learning or is or isn't a useful supplement. Um, And part of that two-dimension is literally because most of it's happening on a computer screen. Um, And... I wondered the extent to which you feel like, let's pretend for a second you'd spent the last, and I know you have a research team at the museum, but if you were doing the research yourself, I would imagine you have a thousand questions you'd love to pursue but but um, and, and do through your team. But I wonder the extent to which the having to, as a, as a leader within the museum space, see the relationship between the physical technology, the projectors, the mechanics, um, all of these things that are, you know, part, part, um, part show, you know, part entertainment, um, backdrop and then part software to what extent has being a, leader in the sense of having to build out that infrastructure helped you think about the real value of the technologies differently from when you were doing research on software for education or, you know, like, does this piece of software help for reading kind of questions, which I think at a certain stage were all the questions in uh, technology research or a lot of the questions. Um, But how has this experience for you changed the kind of questions you have about the potential for uh, technology in 
the digital age and what it can provide for our learning? So, you know, I think uh, if I think back to many, many years ago when I, um, this was the early 80s, so technology, like home, home computers weren't even a thing mm-hmm. back then. And I, I was fortunate I got a job at what was then called Children's Television Workshop, now Sesame Workshop. And I was working for a group within the company called the Children's Computer Workshop. And what absolutely got me smitten and fascinated was that these could be tools for creative expression, for creative imagining, for kind of creative doing on the part of young people. Um, and that, that commitment, Mark, that through line is still the thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I think, you know, we here at the museum, um, in the digital work we've done here and, you know, the way in which we've used, um, technologies to create exhibit experiences, it's all about what are you enabling young people to explore, to investigate, to create, to make, to do? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that conceit, which uh, you know I've learned a lot about over time, of course, um, is still. I I think it's still kind of the holy grail that we should aspire to. Now, you you're right. I mean, many museums use technology to create the wow moments. That that can be a thing. We we tend to sort of stay away from that. We're not we're not so interested in like the whiz bang, jazzy, you know, mm-hmm. thing you can do. Although there are cool things. I mean, especially with like um there's a really interesting company in Brooklyn called Looking Glass that's been working in the hologram space for mm-hmm. years now. And we went and visited them recently. And there's, you know, there's just like fascinating stuff you can do um, with holograms that allow you to explore and investigate in in ways that are very novel and, and very appealing. Like, it, even though you're not literally touching an object, you're you're using gesture to pull an object apart and explore its innards and those kinds of things. And, and super, super compelling and super powerful. And, um, and I think a technology that's potentially very promising um, in a place like this, because the problem with things like VR and stuff like that is, uh, uh, well, and there are a bunch of problems with it, but, um, but just, pragmatically in a museum environment like this, it's like, how do you manage the logistics when you've got, you know, thousands of kids pouring in your building, right. It gets really complicated. And, and part of what you want in a, particularly in a playful, interactive, hands-on museum environment like this, you want to, you, you want to foster engagement with others, right? You want to, you want to create situations where, you know, Kids, kids have an opportunity to see what others are doing and like be inspired and go, oh, I could do that. And, you know, then go try it out and so on and so forth. Yeah. And a lot of technologies sort of push you, push you into that singular. I mean, they're putting you in some virtual world where you're maybe collaborating with others, but they're, you know, you're it's anyway, it gets complicated. But I, I think, you know, the question I always come back to is. 
what's the nature of the experience you want to create? And so much of the tech that finds its way into schools is creating kind of the bad sort of pedagogy that's been in evidence in textbooks or worksheets or drill and skill materials. Um, and the thing that surprises me most about the ed tech community is there's not enough conversation hmm. happening about those kinds of issues. Um, and, um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm always surprised about that because back in the early days of ed tech, like our work and those of us working in this space, it was, it was always married to ideas about progressive pedagogy and effective learning and, you know, the work of developmentalists and others like John Dewey and, you know, Piaget, if you look at the work, you know, that Papert did, Seymour Papert did in the early days um, of the Media Lab at MIT and what his students have gone on to do. Mitch Resnick, who was a student of Seymour's, um, went on to create Scratch. And, you know, that's one of the great creative coding platforms that exist out there. Yeah. But those are those are the exceptions, not the norm. So, you know, what's prevailed in the ed tech world is a lot of stuff that's from a pedagogical and learning point of view, pretty impoverished, mm -hmm. I would say. So, you know, our approach here at the museum is to lean into learning that that is more aspirational, that is really trying to enable kids to get under the hood and think about um, think about things like what is a fraction? How does it work? To really develop not those procedural understandings that schools are that schools focus on, um, but to develop the more conceptually grounded kinds of thinking that you can do mathematically or scientifically um, because that's what positions positions you to be kind of a thoughtful person in the world going forward. Yeah. Design Make Play has been a really important book for a lot of people, not just educators, but people looking to understand more about, you know, what 10 years ago everybody was calling maker education. And I guess right. some still do, but um what it was about sort of in principle and, and value. And the latest edition is Design Make Play for Equity, Inclusion, and Agency. Um, and it, it, it feels super important. And I just wanted to ask you why it felt important to update the book and um, whether you're getting any feedback yet about uh, how people are responding to that. Yeah. Um so thank you for that question. It's um, so first of all, we we <laughs> we refer to that book as our pandemic baby because we really did the work yeah. during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, and it was a great thing for the team of people who contributed to be able to do together. Um, and I think, you know, we leaned into. um the equity, inclusion, and agency piece, because that is really what sits under 
everything that we do here. Like we are paying attention to, you know, like are we creating effective points of engagement, of entry, right? Are we making room for things like, you know, not the one right answer, but the coming up with divergent solutions, um, ways of thinking about problems that, you know, get you to to different places, different conclusions, mm -hmm. all of that. I mean, we are, uh, you know, on some level, Mark, it's really, it is hearkening back to progressive pedagogy, yeah, um, which has always had a commitment to, um, you know, to the whole child, to thinking holistically about what all children need and understanding that all children are not the same, therefore their needs are different, mm. but um, you want to, you, you want to meet them where they're at and create opportunities that don't weed them out, but invite them in. Yeah. And I think, you know, the first book, we were, we as a museum, some of us had been doing this kind of work in different ways for a long time, but we as a museum were newer to all of this, to, you know, what, what you, you called maker education. Um, and that book um, very much reflected that. We, you know, we made it big and broad and inclusive, and we invited lots of different organizations and people to contribute. Mm -hmm. We had workshops in preparation for the book. And it was a, you know, it was a moment where, um, I mean, more than a moment, but there was so much, I think there was so much energy and enthusiasm for what the maker movement was catalyzing. Yeah. And um, in, in, in my way of thinking, which maybe isn't the right way of thinking, but it's how I think about it. It, it, it was very much a return or a resurfacing of the kind of principles of progressive pedagogy, learning through doing and all of those kinds of things. And, and it was a very exciting moment because it was a time when the Obama administration, you know, got behind the maker movement in a big way. I mean, the, the White House hosted, I think it was three maker fairs. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I, I, I had the privilege of going to a couple of those and, it's always it's always extraordinary and special to be invited to the White House. But I knew, you know, a bunch of the staff people working in the Office of Science Technology Policy and the president came out at the first Maker Faire and gave a fabulous talk. And he started off by saying, you know, I, I woke up this morning and like there was this like giraffe creature <laughs> in the Rose Garden. Yeah. And then I looked out the window of the South Lawn and like there was this collection of tiny houses. I was like, what's going on? And anyway, he went on and on. And the staff were so like they were they were high fiving each other out in the hallway because they were like, yes, he owned it. He went off script. Yeah. He owned it. Right. And I think there was I, I mean, I tell that story because it felt like there was that kind of embrace um, leaning into a moment in time where we were really recognizing and celebrating, um, you know, the the power and possibility that is contained in human innovation and invention, and celebrating that for young people and older people and everyone. And um, 
and it was inspiring. It was very inspiring. And I, I um, and I think, you know, in some way, the first Design Make Playbook captured some of that flavor and the enthusiasm and excitement that was unfolding all around the country and, and to some degree the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things things shift and change, of course. And I think our second book reflects, I mean, we built it, it's partly an artifact of when and how we were writing it. We were writing it in the pandemic. We were all stuck at home. We were... Mm-hmm. We were kind of, you know, we weren't reaching out to the world at that moment in time. But at the same time, we had also, over the years, done a significant amount of work, not just research work, yeah. but, you know, research to practice work that took the sort of aspirational goals of Design Make Play and instantiated them in programs and experiences within the museum and led us into you know, important considerations that we're still wrestling with, which is like, um, how do you, how do you sort of disequilibrate the kind of scary authority of science? Mm. How do you make it more accessible? Mm. How do you shift that dynamic? And I think like all of that kind of thinking here, which are, our exhibits team really brings to the surface in ways that are that are really powerful because they they are they are so committed to looking for those points of connection with our visitors because they want to find they want to find the hooks and anchors that make you know what is often a scary enterprise to many of us that make science or technology or engineering relatable make it feel like oh I, I can be good at this. I can do this. Yeah. This can be for me. Um, one, one of the, we, we have this new, I mentioned this earlier, but we have this new exhibit called Powering the City. And it's all about energy and fundamentally about energy transformation, yeah. which is a very abstract concept, right? And um, one of the experiences is, um, is built around um, the idea of, of, you know, what happens when you short circuit something. Mm. So we've all had the experience of you plug in the microwave and then like you plug in the hairdryer and poof, mm-hmm. right? And so they built, you know, these these kind of walls of um, objects and you, you can experiment and plug in and see what trips the circuit breaker. But it's fascinating to watch like, you know, fairly young kids like trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah. And it's such a great example. I, our head of the exhibits team, Dana was saying we, um, we had brought our, we had our board meeting here. So the trustees were all out here and exhibits was showing them around some of the new stuff that was coming in. And she was talking about this particular component. And, and she said, you know, in, in, in the prototyping and when they do prototyping, they're just mocking up cardboard examples. Like it's not fancy, right? They're just like testing what ideas are sticky. And it was, she said it was so compelling and it was compelling because everybody, it was relatable to everybody. Everybody had an experience Mm -hmm. with it. And to me, that is such a powerful and poignant example of kind of, 
disequilibrating the scary authority of science mm. and making it accessible, making it relatable, making it something you can connect with. And, you know, like a lot of those ideas are sort of, they're kind of through lines that run throughout the second book, um, I think. But we're, you know, we've been, we've been hard at work and we continue to be hard at work because we don't have all the answers. I mean, I think the point is you don't, you, you keep, you keep challenging yourself. You keep learning, you keep yeah. experimenting. And, um, and, you know, the more you do that kind of work in collaboration with the people you want to engage, whether it's children on the museum floor or families attending the preschool, um, the more you do that work in partnership, the closer you get to creating experiences that have real relevance and meaning yeah. to folks. I feel like it's really important. Uh, I'll just say that I think I think somebody, um, for someone who is in the field and still has a lot of questions about the right way to be a field that learns and not just a field about learning. Um, I think volumes, you know, where <laughs> leaders in the space update the heuristics or the ideas, you know, because usually a book that's important to a lot of people has kernels that remain important for a very, very long time. If you're in education, a progress only works that fast. Um, but there are, there are a lot of things. It's like you really need a, um, sometimes you need a, a take back or a, a pivot or a new heuristic that um, helps us update and get smarter as a practice. And I think every, you know, from the classroom to the museum to, the many, many other ways that you can yeah. be an educator or be in education, we need practice and we need to be, if, if we're not learning in the open, um, then it's, it's kind of, the question for me personally is what are we doing? But, but, um, anyway, I'm really glad there's a new volume and I hope there are new volumes <laughs> to come, um, because it just so, feels like a missing part of yeah. how we learn. One, yeah, it, uh, you're making such an important point that um, around the importance of, you know, kind of always being both a person and an organization that is learning, right? Yeah. Learning in relation to, learning from. And, you know, in looking through the, the questions you sent me, you, you had a bunch of questions that were probing kind of a lot of the early work I was involved in around girls and tech mm -hmm. and gender paradigms and technology and all of that. And I think like the, the reason why I'm bringing that up now is because I think, I think we're in such an interesting moment in our world where sort of gender expansiveness is challenging. Like some of those kind of early assumptions that, was important for my generation around male and female and what that meant and what it, mm -hmm. you know, what it meant to sort of 
live in a space or engage with a space like my my early dissertation work around Dungeons and Dragons I got I got really interested in that it was a computerized version of Dungeons and Dragons back in the day um but very you know very true to the tenets of D&D and what interested me about it was it seemed like a world that was so overdetermined in terms of gender mm. and and I was interested with how boys and girls who back in the day were kind of fixed in their gender sexuality, we didn't distinguish so much, mm-hmm. right, um, would make meaning in an environment that, I mean, really, I think I was asking questions about an environment that did a really good job of inviting little boys in and a really poor job of, or a really good job of excluding little girls. Mm -hmm. But, you know, kids are creative. So they, you know, I had players who like subverted the narrative, right. And created their own. And it was quite stunning and, um, and funny and humorous and all of that. But I, I was thinking about that this the other day and I was thinking, I don't I don't know exactly what that kind of study would look like in the age of, you know, uh, like a world. Well, at least parts of the world here in New York (laughs) has become, you know, much more Mm -hmm. gender expansive Mm -hmm. where we we have much more fluid boundaries over how we identify and think about our relationship to gender and anchor it in ourselves. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. um, I don't know exactly what that says. I, I do continue to believe that you have to think, you have to think hard and well about the nature of the invitation that you're creating. And that invitation needs to be, broad enough and flexible enough that people who are bringing different selves to the experience can find a path in. Um, But it's like, it's a, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, And when you think about school, if, I mean, this was a point that a wonderful friend of mine, David Rose, who ran CAST, which was all about sort of using tech for universal design purposes, mm-hmm. an organization based in Cambridge. And David was also yeah. on the faculty at Harvard and did a ton of great work. But, you know, he used to make the point that textbooks, unlike technologies, are really, 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 really bad about a con- They're not designed to accommodate to users, right? Whereas... I remember him talking about this in the early days of like GPS systems. Like you'd get in a car, you'd get in a rental car and all of a sudden you'd have this thing called a Garmin or whatever it was. And you could choose, you could choose the language it was going to talk to you in. You could choose whether you're going to navigate by maps Mm -hmm. or words or text, right? You had all this choice about how you wanted to interact with the content. Mm -hmm. And, And it was such a powerful example because David's point was, Textbooks don't make room for any of that kind of choice, any agency on the part of the learner. And technologies do if we use them well, if we think about designing them well and effectively. Yeah. And like, you know, that's a story from, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet 
like it contains such foundational truths that I think are really, really important to kind of elevate and keep teasing out. Because, you know, we particularly in education, we're very ahistorical. We think we're inventing it in the moment. A lot of people do. Like they think it's the first time anybody's ever done what it pick your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, you know, if you're clear about what your aspiration is, like you want kids to have the agency, you want them to be able to pose questions, you want them to be able to experiment and iterate and try things out and mess up and start over. And if you want to create learning that looks like that, mm-hmm. then there really are these through lines that govern how you go about doing that well and effectively. So, you know, if there's a next book, maybe it'll be about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever, you made me think of my favorite documentary about sort of about education um, mm-hmm. is a, a French movie called To Be and To Have. Does that sound familiar? No, I don't know that, but I'm going to write it down. So I've, it's never come up. Um, on the show before, but something about our conversation reminds me of it. And the I, I really think you would like it, It's a documentary. It um, is an amazing piece of immersive journalism where mm-hmm. the filmmaker basically embeds in a one room schoolhouse in the countryside in France um, for the course of a young person's elementary to middle school experience and 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 it's just amazing but um there's a lot about (laughs) bizarrely we're talking about you know technology and you know an in-house fabrication all of this stuff but but in an interesting way part of what i love about this film is that um you could you could kind of boil all of these ideas down to this little one room space that happens very successfully and and in a way Nisai is like a is like a giant version <laughs> of this space and i think it it is uh, you know i'm i'm excited that it lets not just you your whole team uh ask all of these questions in these really important um in these really important ways that are all about not just the thing, the experience, but also about the process and, um, and how you grow as an organization. So um, I am going to let you go because I could, I could very honestly have this conversation all day and uh, both of us have a day job to get back to, but um <laughs> But I will I will say, Margaret, so that I've I've taken the opportunity um, that this show when I started was was a chance for me to build something that was um, I had heard somebody really smart say that if you if you um, if you want to be great at this work, you need to learn in the open. And and Mm. that's really where it started was like I'm having these great experiences and I was teaching as an adjunct at the time. And I'd like for all of my students to be able to learn from these conversations, not least myself, because I listen to them four times and 
um, and I get something new out of them every time I listen to them. But what it turned into in part, I have different kinds of conversations throughout the the arc of the show altogether, and I'm, I'm nearing 100 and whatever, 10, 10 or 12 episodes. Wow. Um, but every once in a while, and uh, make you blush, but but every <laughs> once in a while I get this show is an opportunity for me to have conversations with my heroes. And I say that very seriously that it is not easy. One of the things I think we get so wrong about in this field is that it's really not easy to access professional, you know, heroes is like a big loaded word, but um, just mentorship is so important. It's been so important to me. And we've probably had a dozen conversations in my whole life but every, I, I can recall things about every one of them, and um, and they've all been very, very important to me. And so I will just say I'm so glad that you are doing this work and that uh, you're writing about this work because it's really important to me and I think to a lot of people who um, who work in this space that you described, where it's that balance between the things that excite you and that you feel are right um, – and, you know, uh, the, that volley of hope and hopelessness <laughs> that, that happens in right. between. So I'm so yeah. grateful for your time. Yeah. It's a long way well, of saying well, I'm so you, glad Mark. you could join. No, I love that phrase, uh, learn in the open. I think it's like super powerful. And I, I like I think what you're doing with your podcast is you are creating creating that space, both for yourself, for your guests and you know hopefully for people who get to listen to them i hope so So, thank you for more info about advertising with us sponsoring the show or if you have story ideas you want to share find me on twitter at ma lesser the tracks in this podcast were produced by leroy tindy a guest in episode zero alumni of two bomber nations ithaca and the bronx new york and engineer of digital things and fresh beats Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.